From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Air Force's new Arctic strategy is out with four lines of effort the Air and Space Forces will emphasize. Air Force Chief of Staff General David Goldfein says the department's budget requests for fiscal 21 and 22 focus on what he calls integration of capabilities in the Arctic. Inside Defense reports the strategy details how it intersects with the National Defense Strategy and the DoD Arctic Strategy. The Defense Commissary Agency and its 236 commissaries around the world will get a new leader. William Moore will move from his current job in the office of the Army's Deputy Chief of Staff for Logistics. Military Times reports Moore will replace retired Navy Rear Admiral Robert Bianchi. He's been leading the agency on an interim basis since November of 2017. A $7 billion contract from Transportation Command for moving household items during moves is under protest tonight. Connected Global Solutions LLC and HomeSafe Alliance LLC are protesting the award to American Roll-On Roll-Off Carrier Group. Military.com reports the Government Accountability Office will rule on the protest within 100 days. Both the House and Senate versions of the National Defense Authorization Act spell big changes for the Pentagon's chief management officer. The CMO task force has identified problems with the current role and has notes for Congress as it reimagines the position. Major General Arnold Panaro, U.S. Marine Corps retired as CEO of the Panaro Group and a member of the Defense Business Board. Arnie, welcome back. It's great to see you. When you were on a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this change of heart that you had about the change in the restructuring in the CMO office. Lisa Hirschman was on our virtual conference last week, NATSEC 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond, talking about $11 billion in savings. Does that change your mind at all about whether the structure of the CMO office should stay in place? Francis, it does not, because basically those savings, and all savings are important, but those are really more budget drill savings, the kind of traditional cuts the Defense Department looks for every year. They're not transformational in nature. They're not lasting through the long term of the FIDIP, the future year defense plan. And frankly, they're not benchmarked against the changes that we need to make in the way we run our major business operations in the department to be better, faster, cheaper than China as the national security strategy requires. And frankly, to do those kind of normal budget drills, these are budget drills that the CAPE, the Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation Office, the old Programs Analysis and Evaluation Office, and the DOD Comptroller have been doing for decades. And so you don't need a big uh, bureaucratic organization to do those kind of typical budget drills. So no, it doesn't, doesn't change my mind and clearly has not changed the mind of the Congress, either the House or the Senate. House passed the NDAA version that includes this change. Um, do you like what you see in the legislation that's in Congress right now, or would you like to see it reshaped in the conference that's coming this summer? Well, I would say this is very timely because, as you indicate, Congress exercising its constitutional authorities to organize the Department of Defense followed through on the signal they sent last year, uh, and that is they've eliminated the chief management office position. It's in both bills. Our Defense Business Board review with our 90 interviews and looking at 20 years of history and the track record validated that. 
So it's no longer a question of if, it's a question of when and what. And when you go to the when, I would argue, and I'm not speaking for the Department of Defense, uh, the quicker the better, you know, very soon after enactment, because we can't delay these changes because of the national defense strategy. And then the what, I would say the key design principle, as I mentioned earlier, is the new organization needs to basically ensure that it's part of the integral decision-making battle rhythm of the department focused on outperforming China in every aspect. Over. At what point do you think it's incumbent on Congress, whatever they decide and whatever this structure looks like, Arnie, to say, okay, now we're going to leave it alone for a while. There have been changes at the top levels of OSD with the separation of the AT&L position and a number of other pieces. And I wonder at what point it is important to say, okay, let's stop and let all this shake out, let the boxes get realigned, and let everybody figure out what their role is and then see if it works. I think that's a very valid point, and it's been a valid criticism of the number of changes. But I would say that following the formula that looks to be in the Senate version of the bill, where they took one of the three alternatives that the Defense Business Board recommended Secretary Esper consider, and it looks to me like the Senate version creates the Deputy Secretary of Defense as an enhanced Chief Operating Officer and puts under that person a very high level, at least a level three performance improvement officer to drive these changes within that normal baton rhythm. And then it moves the other responsibilities back to their traditional offices, the CAPE, the Comptroller, the J-8, the undersecretaries who have responsibility for the defense agencies. So it actually, what it's doing is going back to the normal rhythms of the department that have worked for decades and, and have been left alone for a long time. But you make a valid point, and frankly, I think the CMO herself has made this point. We need to put something in place and let it stay there for a while. Uh, but the CMO was in place for 12 years, so I think that was long enough for the Congress uh, to figure out that it wasn't working as it was intended. What will the Comptroller and CAPE do then, and what will the PIO do under this construct that the Senate uh, is considering that you just laid out, Arnie? Well, if, if, if they follow the Senate model and they follow the recommendations of our business board, the PIO will be the outfit that drives transformation in the name of the Secretary and the Deputy Secretary of Defense. And frankly, with Esper and Norquist now, you have the two most aggressive leaders we've had in terms of this kind of transformation, taking on the status quo, breaking the rice bowls, and uh, that office will work directly for them, driving this with the rest of, through the rest of the department. And Kate would pick up basically the responsibility for defense-wide reviews. It's currently in the CMO. The comptroller would pick up the FAIR Act and, and audit-type responsibilities. The CIO would take charge of all the IT-related activities. That's what that role is statutorily designed to do. So you would put these responsibilities back into the normal battle rhythms. The Secretary of Defense needs to tell his undersecretaries that control these big defense agencies like Defense Logistics Agency, Defense Contract Management Agency, here are your performance goals. Here's what I need you to achieve to be better, faster, cheaper than China, and I'm gonna hold you accountable in that way you basically get it into the normal decision structure that's worked so well for decades in the department. General Panaro, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Always good to be here.
Up next, the Navy's next moves in the National Defense Authorization Act. Straight ahead on Government Matters, force structure assessment delays and the shipbuilding plan in the works. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The House's version of the National Defense Authorization Act would hold back 75% of the Navy's operations and maintenance funding until its 30-year shipbuilding plan and force structure assessment are out. The assessment and the shipbuilding plan will probably come this fall. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former special assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations and former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Why is the House so up in arms about the fact that this shipbuilding plan and force structure assessment aren't out? Sounds to me like 75% of O&M held back is, is, is trying to create quite an incentive. Uh, yeah, Francis, thanks for having me on. And uh, it, it's a massive incentive because uh, for the Navy, uh, operations and maintenance is a, a third of their budget. You know, so that means a third of their budget is, is largely off limits until they can come back with a shipbuilding plan. Uh, and it's a legal requirement. So. Uh, as we discussed in the hearing about a month ago, um, Congress is upset, and rightfully so, that the Navy hasn't come across with a shipbuilding plan, or the Department of Defense hasn't, uh, to meet the legal requirement, which would allow the, the Congress to make better choices when they're starting to mark up the uh, Defense Authorization Act, which is on the floor now, or just, just finished with the House, and the appropriations bill. So they clearly want some action on the part of the Navy and Department of Defense, uh, and this is one of the tools they have to do it. And it's going to constrain the Navy's ability to operate after a couple of months of uh, the next fiscal year. So the wrinkle here, it seems to me, Brian, is the fact that the Navy has worked on force structure assessments and at least the size of the fleet with a little bit underneath of the construct of the fleet for a couple of years now. And then recently Secretary Esper said, we're going to do this at the OSD level. What's the chain of events that got us to where we are today, which is, I imagine, partially responsible at least for the delays that the House is upset about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the, the challenge was the Navy came in with a shipbuilding plan and a force structure requirement that was uh, more or less a, a modest modification of what they had had in the previous year. So they, they weren't evolving the fleet as rapidly or as aggressively as the SECDEF was looking for. Uh, a couple of things that maybe didn't get come out as much uh, in the shipbuilding plan that the, the SECDEF wanted was a more rebalanced uh, force, particularly the surface force, towards a larger force of smaller platforms, you know, frigates, uh, corvettes, unmanned vessels, um, and also uh, the ability of the fleet to be able to uh, implement the Navy's operational concept. So the Navy's got uh, a warfighting concept that they've been trying to uh, put in place. Um, the fleet that was being proposed didn't really match up with the warfighting concept. And so uh, those two reasons, plus the affordability of the future fleet, I think were, were, what led the SECDEF to say we need to go and do this as a collaborative effort as opposed to just the Navy presenting a result. You were a witness at that hearing that you referenced a moment ago. What was your primary takeaway from exactly, uh, pin down as much as you can, uh, exactly what the House expect, what the HASC expects? Uh, so the HASC expects the Navy to come, come across with a vision for the future fleet uh, and then an executable shipbuilding plan. Uh, they're frustrated, clearly, that the past few years the Navy's shipbuilding plans have been more or less am more ambitious than they are executable. They, they, they got optimistic assumptions for cost uh, and for the amount of money that might be available. 
Um, they don't uh, shift the fleet in a new direction that's more likely to be effective against a country like China. So they're looking for that new vision, and they want it to be executable within the budget constraints that are likely to be facing the Navy in the future. That's a, that's a somewhat tall order, but that's what they're looking for. What do you, how does the, uh, the, uh, the new Marine Corps uh, strategy and, and worldview influence the way that the Navy is thinking about, or, or whether now OSD is thinking about reconstructing the way it looks at the fleet? That's a great question. So one of the, the big areas of conversation during that hearing was the Marine Corps and the, the amphibious force structure that would result from the new Marine Corps force design that's being uh, finalized right now by the Commandant and his staff. Uh, so what we're seeing is that uh, the Marines are looking to kind of have a, a bimolar force, if you will. So they want to have uh, a force at sea on our traditional amphibious ready groups that do kind of high-end deterrence and can do disaster and crisis response when necessary, but they're mobile, they're at sea. Then there's also a component of the Marine Corps that's going to be ashore doing what they call expeditionary advanced base operations. They'll be supported by a cadre of smaller ships that will be um, uh, either stern land or landing vessels like you see from World War II, um, or there'll be smaller logistics ships that help these, uh, these forces maintain themselves while they're in these remote areas like the Philippine archipelago or maybe uh, Indonesia or Malaysia even. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago the desire of the Office of the Secretary of Defense to see more about autonomous uh, vehicles in the Navy's force structure assessment. Is that kind of the bright, shiny object that people are following at, at, at maybe the exclusion of some of the other ways that the fleet needs to modernize? Or is that really the major way of the future that will differentiate the fleet in, say, 2040 from the way the fleet looks today, Brian? Yeah, there's a wide divergence of opinion on that. So within the, the, the study effort that, that we're part of uh, at Hudson Institute, we're looking at a, a relatively modest use of unmanned vehicles. So the, the medium unmanned surface vessel, which the Navy just awarded a contract for uh, this week, I believe, uh, is going to be the major unmanned component of the surface force. And it does a lot of sensing and counter uh, sensing, uh, maybe anti-submarine warfare. Um, but we also saw that the Navy's large unmanned surface vessel that they've been proposing is probably not a really a feasible concept, given that it's a large vessel that's expensive. You don't want to you know, have it driving around the South China Sea with no people on it. Um, so there, that's where you get this divergence uh, among uh, us in the analysis community. And then on the Hill, the concern is, are these ve vessels um, ready for prime time? You know, are they, the, the technologies that are supposed to allow them to be autonomous for months at a time ready to be able to support that kind of operation? So um, on the Hill, you've got some conservatism. Uh, in OSD, maybe you've got a little bit more um, ambitious approach. And then, you know, within the analytic community, we're trying to square the circle between the two. Uh, we have about a minute left, Brian, um, that not ready for prime time reticence on the hill is do you think this is just your sense i'm curious about is it really that or is it is it ready to be built in my district uh no i think it's i think it's legitimately about the executability of the unmanned vessel concept uh, which uh, the navy as they describe it is intending to these vessels to operate for several months at a time and the question is can they really operate that long? Uh, will the propulsion systems fail? Will they need repair periodically? You know, with no people on board, how long can you really expect them to operate unattended? Uh, so I think that's really where it, where it centers. Um, and it's less about districts, because I think it, the expectation is these vessels will be built in a lot of places uh, once they get started, um, and it'll benefit new places that haven't previously had a shipbuilding, a strong shipbuilding industry. Brian Clark, thanks very much as always. Great to see you. Thank you, Francis. Great being on. Up next, tracking down spare parts for F-35 fighters. Straight ahead on Government Matters, solving supply chain problems for the most expensive weapon system ever.
Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The House Oversight and Reform Committee said this week it wants answers from Lockheed Martin about the spare parts it provides for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. The Defense Department Office of Inspector General has been tracking the problems with spare parts and electronic logs on that aircraft. Teresa Hull is Assistant Inspector General at the uh, Department of Defense for Audit, Acquisition, Contracting, and Sustainment. Teresa, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are the problems that Lockheed has had to get parts to depots and installations for this aircraft? What we found is that Lockheed Martin was not providing parts in accordance with the contract requirements. These parts were supposed to show up at the F-35 sites ready to be installed on the aircraft. Instead, they weren't. And in addition, they did not come with electronic logs that would detail the history of the part. What does that mean for the maintenance and the flying of the aircraft? What does that mean that somebody has to do once that part is, is taken in at the, its final destination? We found that the, the part issue was so pervasive that maintainers at the individual F-35 sites had to rework the parts. They were faced with a very difficult decision. Do they rework the part and keep their operational and training missions going, or do they not and ground the aircraft? So anytime that these parts were reworked, they also had to use manual processes to track. So they were using whiteboards and spreadsheets, for example, instead of actual electronic um, data systems. So that increased risk not only to the pilot, but also to the aircraft overall. When we're talking about tracking these parts, Teresa, what does that mean? What, what was the company supposed to do? What was supposed to be on these electronic logs? And what was that supposed to facilitate when that part was landed in a, at a military installation? The, the part should have arrived to each of the sites ready for issue, which means the part should have been able to be immediately installed on the aircraft and in addition, had to contain that electronic log. So the contractor identified for the F-35 about 8,000 parts or so that should have an electronic log with them. And what we found is that several of those parts arriving didn't have, didn't have that electronic log. So when you don't have that part history information, it's very risky uh, to use those parts. What did you get a sense of what the issue was with these parts not being logged and, and not being ready to go on the aircraft? Was it something that the company was not able to do? If it's spelled out in the contract, it strikes me that it should be something that they should be aware that they have to do. Yes. Yeah, so so a lot of a lot of the, the problems surrounding the, the ready for issue parts and the electronic log books were the fact that the, the problem was just became so pervasive, and um, a lot of this should have been tracked from the, the system itself, um, but the system wasn't necessarily updated because the parts weren't coming with that electronic information. So overall, it, it became a very pervasive issue. Um, coupled with that, we, we found incentive payment problems as far as the calculations being unverified and unvalidated. How was that system supposed to work and where were the deficiencies there? 
For the incentive payments, contractors usually are awarded incentive fees based on achieving certain metrics. So the rework that the DOD maintainers were doing at the F-35 sites were unintentionally um, inflating the availability of the parts. So Lockheed was able to receive payment even though DOD labor was what got the part ready to go on the aircraft. For the part issue, is the solution, is your recommendation as simple as just start logging these things, or is it more complex than that, Teresa? It's, it's more complex. Uh, so, yes, the, 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 uh, the part issue and the electronic log is, is extremely important, of course. Um, we, we have several recommendations in our, in our report that talk to strengthening the contract mechanism you mentioned earlier. You know, why wasn't the part showing up if it was, if it was laid out as such in the contract? Well, we recommend it to the Joint Program Office in future contracts to put a, a mechanism in the contract to be able to hold the contractor more accountable for not delivering those parts ready to go on the aircraft. And we also uh, provided recommendations for strengthening contractor oversight. The Joint Program Office created an environment where they were entirely reliant on the contractor for information. So in order to ensure that incentive fees are, are properly paid or not paid, uh, we, the Joint Program Office needs to put itself in a better position to have its own government data. How will you track this moving forward? Is, I, I imagine this is something that you'll come back to. Is it something that you'll come back to on an ongoing basis? Or is it something that you'll come back to as someone calls your attention to it, Teresa? Well, we have the Joint Program Office uh, agreed with our recommendations. So we will be tracking those recommendations to ensure that they are implemented. And we're also in the process of our FY21 audit plan, uh, audit planning process. So we, we always consider areas of risk across the department when determining which audits to do. Teresa Hull, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.